Before we get into today's episode, just want to tell you about the Joint Public Issues Team Conference we've got coming up on the 11th of June. It's called From the Ground Up, where we're going to be exploring the importance of the local, talking to different campaigners and causes and learning and growing together. It's incredibly cheap. It's such a steal. If you attend online, it's only £5 for the whole day. And if you come to London to come on site, it's only £12 and it's free for under 25s and those on low income. Make sure that you come and say hi to Ryan and I when you come to the conference. And we can't, we can't wait to see you. Enjoy this week's episode. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening again this week uh, to Faith in Politics. Our guest today has a truly impressive resume that I've um, stolen from uh, her organisation's website. She's a qualified barrister, author, political strategist, activist, uh, television journalist. Um, and today we're, we're speaking to her in her illustrious capacity as the director of an organisation called Compassion in Politics. Jennifer Nadel, we're so pleased to welcome you to the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, Jennifer, it's so good to meet you. And I'm sure we're going to hear so much more about what you're doing as we chat. Um, so just as we start, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, about your, perhaps you've got a political background yourself, and what drew you to Compassion in Politics as an organisation? Well, I have always had this fire in my belly against injustice and unfairness. And I think the whole of my career has been built around trying to find the most effective way of trying to shift the dial on those issues about which we're all concerned, whether it's climate change or hunger or homelessness or refugees dying at sea, what can we do about it? So first of all, I started off with the law, then I switched to um, television journalism, and then I stood for parliament a couple of times and realised that I party politics wasn't for me. And then I ran some single issue campaigns. And then I really got to thinking, you know, what is the underlying cause of all those, all the avoidable suffering that we see on a daily basis on our news screens? They're all competing for attention and they're all these single issue campaigns. And it's like whack-a-mole, you make some headway on one issue and then another rears its tragic or ugly or brutal mm. head. So what could be done to shift the dial altogether? And um, together with a colleague, Matt Hawkins, we decided to found Compassion in Politics. This was in 2018, in the belief that if we could introduce more compassion into the political process, then that would have a knock-on effect across a whole range of issues. In other words, all of those issues suffered from the same fundamental cause an absence of compassion at the heart of politics. So if we could put compassion into politics, then across the board, there would be a shift towards alleviating some of the you know, gravest injustices that, that we have around us. I, I guess it's a question you get a lot, Jennifer, but when you say compassion, what, what do you mean by that? By compassion, we mean, and it's a definition that we've taken from Professor Paul Gilbert, um, who is the head of the Compassionate Mind Foundation, is an empathetic connection with another's suffering 
coupled with action to alleviate it. So it's not just an empathetic response or a feeling of sorrow or distress or outrage. It is that feeling coupled with action. You know, it's no good. It's, it, so compassion isn't pity. It goes further than kindness because it is, it is based on the belief that everyone is of equal value and of equal worth. And we are all morally obliged to help those who are struggling when we're not struggling in those ways. So it's about standing with the person who's suffering, not above, not reaching down and offering them a hand, but about standing shoulder to shoulder with those who are suffering wherever they are, whatever their skin color, whatever their political or religious affiliation. So is there an example of when you think that compassion has been sorely needed in a political debate or scenario? Um, and what difference do you think that could have made if there was this element of more compassion in that debate? Well, we see in our politics at the moment, this split between fear and compassion. And when we have a politics that is dominated by fear, it's very difficult to connect with the compassionate side of ourselves. So I'm thinking of issues like refugees. You know, if, if the right-wing media are telling us that we're being flooded by people who are going to take our jobs and our homes, then we're not going to have a compassionate response. But if actually we see the humanness of what's happening and understand that this is something that can happen to anyone, no one is immune. We've seen that at the moment in Ukraine, a nation that never expected to experience the horrors that it's now experiencing. So certainly in terms of immigration and, and asylum seeking, we can see that. We can also see it in people who um, claim benefits. You know, there's been a narrative that has replaced the wonderful narrative we had that came along with the founding of the welfare state, that the state would be there to take care of people from the cradle to the grave. And we've had that replaced with a rather mean narrative that those who fall upon hard times and need help are scroungers or malingerers or trying mm. to get one over on society, which is simply untrue. But what it does is it means that we no longer need to feel compassion. So a lot of it is about othering. It's about seeing people who are having a terrible time as somehow other and somehow to blame for their misfortune. Because if they're to blame, then we are relieved of the obligation to care and it hurts to care. So it's a wonderful defense if we're given that let out, feel angry, feel outraged, don't feel sad or helpless in the face of suffering dismiss them as not worthy of help i just wonder to offer maybe what a, a criticism might be and i i should say you know i'm a i'm a car carrying member of the Labour party i work for a labor mp a lot of what you've described i think i i agree with i think great but might one say what you're describing where essentially we're talking about helping and protecting the vulnerable people in some instances, you know, you mentioned the welfare state through, through in some cases, um, big state could, might somebody criticize you and say, what you're really talking about is, is left-wing politics. That's not, that's not um, compassionate politics per se, but that's just a, a, a byword for a kind of big state left of center politics. I think that's a very tribal way of looking at it. And I think the values 
that most politicians go into politics with are broadly the same. You know, I, right. I haven't met a politician and I've met many on both sides of the house who isn't motivated by a desire to relieve avoidable suffering and to end want and deprivation and poverty. So I think that all politicians go in with the same motivation and then ideology takes over and there's a kind of tug of war over rightness. And what we're trying to say is forget your ideology, forget which model, whether it's big state or small state, how are we actually going to solve these problems? And we need everyone involved. We can't just do it with one part of the political spectrum. And it's a conversation that matters to every politician, whatever their hue, but it does involve stepping back from this tribal tug of war over right practice and into a space where we just think, what can we do? And Jennifer, before you just mentioned something that was really interesting, the idea that it's through fear and it's through othering people that we are able to, I guess, get an easy way out from the hard path of compassion. And that sounds very similar to a lot of the work we do at JPIT um, around adequacy of income and benefits and um, campaigns for refugees, etc. But something that's been reflecting on is that, so during the pandemic, there was so many people, especially at the start, we all know people who lost their jobs um, because of the pandemic, people who found themselves in massive unexpected financial hardship that they had never experienced before. And the number of people who claimed benefits for the first time was massive. And because suddenly the idea of um, going on benefits, it felt closer, I think, to a lot of people. And I guess in that situation, it's, it's harder to other people. Um, and it was massively unifying time. But now that we're out of that season, now that we're in more of a normal life again, some of those old narratives, I guess, seem to be slipping back in of the idea of, like you're saying, people who are on benefits perhaps being scroungers or um, not trying as hard, which it just isn't, I don't think is true. But just wondering what you think, Jennifer, about how do we stay unified? How do we stay compassionate? when there isn't a massive crisis moment that unites us as a society, when we're just rumbling along? That's such a good question. And what a crisis does is, is it enables us to let go of our own petty concerns and raise our eyes to the horizon and think, you know, what really matters in this life and kindness and support and caring and connection are the things that really give worth to life, not the things that we're educated to believe give worth to life, possessions, climbing the greasy pole, only to discover there's another greasy pole that needs climbing after that and another and another and then it's over. So crises do definitely focus us on the things that are important, but what draws us away from that is the dominant cultural narrative we have a cultural narrative which is about competitive individual self-interest. It's about winning, and if you're the winner, someone else is the loser. It's a very binary way of looking at things, and it hasn't always been so. You know, this way of thinking started in the UK 
well, it really originated from, um, you know, the Chicago School of Economics and then was bedded down in the UK and the United States and then has become the dominant ideology. But, you know, organisations like the Royal Academy have done fantastic work looking at what the reality is, you know, and this is a period of 50 years in our history. And prior to that, there was a strong feeling that that we all had a moral obligation to those who were suffering. So we've seen the threads of the social contract being snipped. If we had a dominant narrative, which was about, you know, what matters, we're better than this, that reinforced the internal values that we all hold and that we saw shine through during the pandemic. And again, in the response of so many to the terrible things that are happening in the Ukraine, then I think that it wouldn't only be in a crisis moment that we live like that, but that hopefully we could develop a society where everyone's needs were adequately met. How, how do we go about making that, that narrative or changing that narrative to, to be the dominant one? Because it, 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 it feels to me that the powers of these narratives, climb the greasy pole or the, the American dream, if you work hard, you get there on your own back, you earn everything you get. These are so kind of entrenched in the kind of Western mythos or, or around politics and and around the way we do things how do you begin to pull back on those it seems to me very deeply held views and narratives well it takes courageous leadership mm. and we have a very short-term political system where if you want to win in our first pass the post system you need to appeal to the lowest common denominator you know we mm. see Labour trying to outcuff the Conservatives, and no one is really offering an alternative vision that is founded on what our real nature is as humans and what sort of a world we want to live in in the long time. We're dominated by short-term crisis after short-term crisis, and no one is looking at the bigger picture. And you spoke about how the pandemic or the Ukraine, you know, in the face of a crisis, we unite and something else shines through, but we're all living on the edge of environmental catastrophe. And unfortunately, there is no mainstream leader, certainly in, in yeah. this country, able to inspire and create a vision around which we can rally and move forward and transition into the sort of economy we need to have if we're, we're to face this crisis off. I wonder as well if, if one of the are the key instincts that is in humans. And, and one of the, the things you, uh, it's, on, it's on your website and your organization says is, we're so much bigger than the, the story we've been told about us. And I'm, I'm really, I really admire that kind of very positive view, that positive anthropology of us. But I wonder as well if another instinct that is undeniably there in human beings is, is, is anger. And yesterday, we're, we're recording this the, the day after um, the fixed penalty notices have been handed out to Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. And when that happened yesterday, I, I got a text from my friend, which just said a four letter word, the lot of them. There was a real anger there. There was a real sense of betrayal. To what extent do you think, Jennifer, anger has a place in political motivation? Anger can sit alongside compassion as a, as a motivator, or, or should we rightly say, Anger is not going to get us very far. Anger is a really important, healthy human emotion, and it's the emotion that drives change. 
the problem is that in our society, we don't know how to process and express and feel anger in a clean way. It often mutates into rage, into hate, into something far more toxic. Mm. You know, anger, if, if someone treads on your toe, you're gonna want to shove them off your foot to stop the pain. And that's a very natural protective mechanism. But if you then construct a whole narrative about the person who trod on your toe, about the fact that they are in fact evil, that in fact the only way to make the world better is to get rid of them or to wrest power from them, you end up fighting the wrong fight. So yes, we need anger. Anger is what fuels us, but it needs to be used to drive change rather than to drive hatred. Mm. And unfortunately, the current leadership that we have and those who are gaining traction are those who offer us the easy way out. You know, hate is much easier to feel. Hate, moral outrage, are much easier to feel than the far more complex bundle of emotions like sorrow, like powerlessness, like despair. But we humans are complex beings and, and we can't just short circuit the process and jump straight into rage because if we do, then we end up perpetuating the very problems and the very injustices that we seek to cure. So take on the left, for example, you know, that the fighting that has happened within the Labour Party, you know, has all been based on, you know, identification, you know, tribal identification, you know, are you this type of, of Labour or are you that type of Labour? And as a result, the Labour Party spent a lot of time fighting itself when it should have been outward focused. And we see it on the right, we see it with Brexit, you know, again, we get offered the opportunity to hate and um, to stick a finger up at the system. And it's, it's taken, although it's much more complex, and I don't mean to dismiss, um, you know, what happened with Europe in, in that simplistic way, I'm really just trying to describe an emotional response. And you talked earlier about this narrative that we're that we believe in, that we are all so much better as humans than the dominant narrative at the moment, mm. which is almost Hobbesian, is, yeah. is that it isn't just anthropology, it's also science. You know, psychology tells us that humans pass through as part of their de de development, every single human learns to express compassion. It happens at about 18 months to two years old, a toddler will experience very pure distress and seek to comfort someone else who is crying or visibly distressed. So compassion is innate. It's not just some construct, it's innate in all of us. We all know it. During the pandemic, we saw so many of us respond with compassion. Similarly with the Ukraine crisis, we responded with compassion. And really politics has become divorced from the values that most of us use to guide our daily lives. You know, in our homes, we take care of those who are struggling. We don't throw granny out because she ceased to be of economic value to us. We don't think she's worthless. And yet somehow when we leave the door and enter the world of work and the political world, we have a completely different set of values that dominates. And, and, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about the loss of trust in politicians and the loss of faith in democracy. But that 
is because I believe that politics has drifted away from those fundamental core values that the majority of us humans hold. And if politics could shift its way back to them, something truly amazing could happen. It just strikes me that, as you said, with the current narratives being so angry and almost using that lowest common denominator to mobilise people, to get enough votes, um, to get into power in the first place, that it does encourage like poor quality debate. It does encourage, I guess, encouraging this negative side of anger that you've been talking about, the rage and the hatred um, separates people from ourselves. How would it be possible for that to change when it feels like there's so much to be gained politically at the moment in the current situation, stirring up hatred and there's so much to be gained from stirring up discord and anger and, and infighting is so rife. You're just wondering if you could give us some ways that could happen or that where things that, or things that you're trying to bring about that change. Well, at Compassion in Politics, we strongly believe that if you don't have a compassionate system, you're not going to get compassionate outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if we want to change the way the game is played, then we just need to do some tweaks to the rules. And first off, there are two very obvious changes that we are campaigning for. One is for a change in the way debate happens on the floor of the House in Westminster. In no other boardroom, in no classroom, in no college, in no organisation would the shouting, the jeering, the bullying, the harassing be tolerated. And yet our political leaders think that it's clever and funny and smart to have this gladiatorial, patriarchal conflict at the heart mm. of our politics. You know, and Westminster has birthed two more functional children in the, the Northern Ireland, well, in, in, in all the nations governments than it has in its own you know if you go to Scotland you don't hear shouting jeering I spoke to to one of the deputy speakers up there and she said if someone made a chicken noise in this house they would be thrown out this isn't a kindergarten this is a parliament mm -hmm. and yet somehow we have normalized the most terrible behavior so starters we can't have behavior that wouldn't be tolerated in any other serious place of work and secondly, the whipping system, which is actually founded on bullying. You know, let's get rid of those two things. If we have a politics that's founded on derision, ridicule, humiliating, threatening, bullying, blackmailing, bribing, how are we going to have a healthy political environment? And it comes from the top. And those are not difficult changes to make. But I think that they would begin the start of something very significant. Another thing is honesty. You know, we've we've drawn up a bill which we've got cross-party support for, which would make deliberate misrepresentation in politics of factual matters an offence in the same way as it is if you're selling goods or services. I mean, you can't buy a used car and be told that it's, it's a Rolls-Royce safe. In fact, it's Ford. So yeah. why is it okay for politicians to repeat factually inaccurate statements in the face of corrections to refuse to take them back. That can't be right. And again, we would not be able to behave in our places of work in this way. So why do we let politicians get away with it? Advertising. 
political advertising doesn't fall within the Advertising Standards Authority. Why not? Let's bring it into line with every other form of advertising. You know, it is not rocket science. Procedures, rules, laws exist that govern every other part of our life that politics has declared itself immune from and has kept alive, you know, bullying, patriarchal, privileged traditions that do not benefit the country as a whole and ultimately threaten faith in our democratic system. So good, Jennifer. I, when I was doing a bit of reading um, and research before our conversation, um, one of those things you brought up, the idea of the adversarial gladiatorial context of PMQs, of the Commons, I just was so struck by how many people, ordinary people, think that that's normal politics, think that that's the main and the plane of the political game, that they're all children and nothing, no work ever gets done, it's all for play, it's all for power. And having actually now working for an MP, I, I find that quite so frustrating when people think that's the norm and trying to explain actually now a lot of work gets done so much work behind the scenes but it's just not seen no I absolutely and when I sit you know in a meeting a cross-party meeting for example we helped coordinate a response on the online harms bill and it was amazing to see it didn't matter what your party was all these MPs working together cooperatively and collectively towards a common goal absolutely extraordinary and if that was the picture that the public got to see and it is the vast majority of political work. It's campaigning and it's debate on the floor of the house that the public get to see, which does not represent the vast, the vast bulk of the work that actually happens. And that's something we can change. None of this is rocket science. It's all doable and it's doable within the next five to 10 years um, if enough of us work to try and make it happen. I guess the the pessimist in me, and I I envy your optimism, Jennifer. Say, well, they're not going anywhere. The, the people who are running the show at the moment, they're, they're bound to rights for lying. Um, it couldn't be clearer. And and yet they just say, no, actually, no, we're going to keep on doing the job. Um, you can't hold us accountable. Um, we've got a massive majority, and um, we're going to be here until at least twenty twenty four. That obviously, look, I'm carrying all sorts of personal biases and anguishes and all the rest of with that. But I don't know. I, I at the moment, don't share your, your optimism. I think there are people across the political spectrum who aren't happy with what's happening at the moment. And it's much harder for them to speak out than it is for opposition politicians to speak out. But all mm. people who know what decency, respect for the law, truth-telling looks like none of them are going to be happy with this conduct. And, you know, if we take a mature view of what's happening, we understand the forces that individuals are operating on. And what we have to do is encourage and support those individuals who are willing to speak out against their own mm. colleagues who are not behaving properly. And so I think again making it a tribal thing rather than making it about universal values is mm. is problematic you know we need to appeal across the benches to everyone who holds truth decency and accountability dear to say this isn't okay and if we brand one party as 
as the party that's responsible for that, we lose the chance mm. to make change happen other than simply by hoping that a different party wins the election at the next opportunity. It is not yeah. good enough. You know, it's not good enough. These changes need to happen now and they need to involve everyone, you know, and it's a large, in large a legacy of the two, you know, the, the, the two party model that we have in Britain, yeah. that plurality of views isn't respected and that we're not willing to reach across those divides to find the points where we do agree and to agree to disagree respectfully and respect the areas that we disagree on. And that happens across the house that there is that lack of respect. But, you know, as, as you've just said, Beth, there are also many times when politicians work across the divide to try and achieve common goals that are for the benefit of the whole of society. And, mm. and we need to amplify what's good rather than focus on what's bad. You know, what we focus on grows. The more we focus on how rotten the state is, the more mm. depressed, disengaged, detached everyone will come. But if we talk about a narrative that rings true and does accord with our values, then we can build a cohesive momentum around that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I think as well with the with the two-party system we've got at the moment, it does strike me that so much of the priority is around um, ensuring that your team wins, ensuring that um, the Conservatives win at the next election or that Labour wins at the next election. And it's and but as you say, it's it's those tribal links, those tribal roots that sometimes seem to supersede what's what's in the best interest of the country or even working collaboratively. So Absolutely. And, you know, and that's what the whipping system says. What is most important is your party not looking foolish. Forget truth. Forget your own individual beliefs. Forget what you've promised your constituents. The only thing that matters is that you support the leader. And that can't be right. You know, that that's not moral. So, you know, we need to change the way we do politics if we want to start seeing different outcomes. And just on that point of tribalism, you know, it, it's much more complicated than saying we shouldn't be tribal because tribalism arises through a human need, a legitimate human need to belong, to be able to identify with others, to feel part of a group. And that is biologically driven in order to survive. You know, we still have not evolved those fundamental drives within us. They still come from, from a fight or flight Neanderthal response to threats. And, and we still can find ourselves if we don't become aware of our own psychological processes and we do a lot of work and a lot of training to try and raise consciousness around this and awareness around this. But if we don't know when we've been triggered into a fight or flight response, then we're going to act out on an adrenaline focused response. You know, what happens when we're triggered by politics of fear or fight or flight is that we're triggered out of the front of our brains where we're capable of nuanced argument and taking perspective and into the Neanderthal, for better words, dinosaur part of our brain, which is just about survival. And we will either freeze fight or flee so you know our politics is in a very triggered state it's in fight or flight or freeze most of the time 
but actually we can take what we know from psychology that if politics is triggered, it needs to be soothed. We need to take away the things that exacerbate conflict, that exacerbate difference and try and lower the temperature. And if we do that, other solutions will be possible because we will now be operating with all of our mental functioning available to us. Our cognitive functioning won't be impaired by this threat perception. Thank you so much, Dinefa, for coming to speak to us. I have been really inspired, actually, and to hear the practical outworkings and the specific things that you think we actually could change in the system. I've said it before, and I'll say I found it really encouraging, and for the sake of our democracy, and <laughs> the sake of truthfulness in our um, politics, I certainly... Um, wish you and compassion and political the best and um we'll be following what you do and supporting you myself um uh, thank you so much for your time for coming to speak to us thank you so much for having me on i've really enjoyed the conversation that's brilliant thank you jennifer so you've made it this far into our latest faith in politics podcast and you're a keen listener and you want to help us make it even better we are planning a focus group session where we're going to chat to people, listen to the podcast, we've got some ideas, and who we want to just rack your brains about what you enjoy and what you think could be even better. If you're up for meeting with us, with Ryan and I, Beth, once in May, then we would love to hear from you. If you could email inquiries at jointpublicissues.org.uk, we'll get in touch with the date and it'd be great to chat with you to hear from you um, and and to rack your brains about how we can make this even better thanks so much fab well that was a lot of fun chatting jennifer she was very um just such clearly just a big brain i'm still kind of um dizzy from from talking to her really enjoyed that do you enjoy that beth i think it was really clear how much i enjoyed it um <laughs> she spoke so well and really was able to bring those lofty values which can feel a bit hypothetical into some practical outworkings which I really enjoyed and I mean yeah enjoyed hearing from her absolutely um yeah how have you been Ryan? Yeah good it's been so it's been recess at time of recording which means we've we've uh, all the MPs have been away and we've just been um alone in the House of Parliament it's been very nice it's meant I've um, been able to go into the places that are normally off limits. So I went into the House of Commons for the first time. Parliament in recess is the place to be. That's that's my advice. Great behind the scenes tour. Um, yeah, it is a completely different place, isn't it? When it's much quieter. Um, yeah, I always feel bolder to walk around when I feel like I'm not gonna get um, absolutely mm. crowded with MPs left, right and centre. Um, yes. I've um, been working from home this week. You probably can hear I've got a bit, a bit of a cold. But I'm soldiering on, doing okay. But now, now is the time to get a cold. If you're going to get it, get it in recess, get it out of the yeah. way, and then you'll yeah. bounce back for at full health and fitness as we uh, come to the end of this exciting <laughs> parliamentary session in May. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And we've got the Queen's speech coming up on the 10th of May. So um, that'll be my first one whilst I'm working in Parliament. So I'm quite intrigued for what that looks like. I don't know if we'll get a glimpse of her, but I, I doubt mm -hmm. it. But we call it she'll be there. Have you ever seen the Queen? 
no and it's one I really want to and I'm gonna stick around in London for Jubilee weekend just because I, I can't not see the Queen in my lifetime you know <laughs> we'll see you're a, queen, you're a Queen fan aren't you you're a Queen lover I think it's really great I I'm not sure that I necessarily am like a massive monarchist but I think she's really great and um the number of people who've seen the Queen in real life, I think it's like more than half of the population. She's been alive for so long. Of the UK? Yeah. Isn't that Not why? Not of the world. No, okay. Fair. <laughs> of the UK. And I want to be one of those people. So that's... That's a lot, to be fair. Would she, um, would she be at, like, if you, could, if you could have a sort of dinner party with three people dead or alive, would she be there? I think so but I think she'd probably get tired really early so you have to have some other people <laughs> that were going to bring the chat later on as like some jokes you know because I think she'd probably like maybe just have a starter and a main and then and then need to go you know go to bed fair what about what about if you have her but like age 60 oh that would be great again I kind of feel like she could be like pretty funny and I'd like to find that out okay well one day maybe in <laughs> heaven you can, uh, you can, yeah, you can kick back with Liz yeah. and chat um, about things. Yeah. So, Brian, it would be at your dinner party. Yeah, good question. Um, good question. Um, I think uh, maybe an Ed. I was I was going to say I was going to say exclusively Labour leaders from from <laughs> the last century. So it's going to be uh, Tony Blair, Ed Miliband. And um, Clement Attlee, um, the three <laughs> of us, just kicking back, um, talking it over. Uh, so, yeah, it would be entirely Labour leaders at my um, at my at my dinner party. Now, speaking of Labour leaders, <laughs> um, hope, hope, hope for a better future, oh, no. hope for a <laughs> for a better alternative. Now, in my view, that that comes with Labour leaders, um, but I understand that other people. Um, may come to different views about that. And one thing that struck me from our conversation with uh, Jennifer was this this call to go beyond the tribal, which um, I realise I'm already failing at. Maybe I should have like John Major at my at my dinner party as well, just for balance. Anyway, so what 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 um what did you make of that that call to to step away from tribalism? I found that specific point quite interesting because I've recently been listening to a podcast. Um, there are other podcasts out there. Um, the rest is politics um, with Rory Stewart. And oh, Alistair Campbell would also be at my <laughs> dinner party. And Alistair Campbell. And they, one of the things they've been talking about recently is how strong that tribal instinct is. And they actually talk about it as a massive driving force as that unifies people as a real political motivator. And I think it absolutely is. And we all want to feel that unity with other people that's, that share the same values and beliefs as we do. So I guess I'm reluctant to brand all quote unquote tribalism as entirely negative mm. because I think we are always going to have causes that that rally us together that rally some people and not others We're always going to have people who we resonate with as our worldview is similar 
And I think to say that that is always unhelpful, um, I think it's a little bit simplistic. And I'm not saying that she necessarily thinks it's always wrong or, or bad, but um, I guess I don't think we're ever going to step completely away from a sense of parties or tribes mm. or things that unify certain groups of people. And I, I think it's kind of a, a wasted argument to try. Um, mm. What I did really like, though, is how she talked about that that hope, like you're saying, um, of how we as human beings, as people, mm. um, do share innate worth and care for one another is a norm. And I think that's a cause for hope, to um, be reminded of those values that so many of us hold and, and so many of our listeners will hold because you know having faith and wanting to care for other people um I think run really close um so that for me for sure is a source of hope um yeah what did you think Ryan yeah I mean it's interesting I think with with tribalism I mean I know I've been talking a lot about the Labour Party and but I am mostly joking and I actually don't feel especially tribal about anything and I, I think particularly around um nationality i often i often find it very hard to empathize with um a lot of the narratives and a lot of the language that is spoken that were that you know for example was spoken during the brexit um referendum because i don't feel especially english like i i am english i'm british i um and i will you know I will. I would give my spleen to see England win the World Cup, for example. Like you know, when it comes <laughs> to football, I definitely am a nationalist. But generally, like my identity doesn't really feel particularly tied up in where I was born, or or, or at least not. I don't. I'm sure it is subconsciously, but it isn't viscerally. So I sometimes find it difficult to empathise with people who um, feel very, very English or very whatever but I recognize that people do and I recognize that actually for lots of people it really is a big part of actually who they are and who they they feel they are and I would be the last person to say I hope I'd be the last person to say that that um that those labels those tribes are um not legitimate because people feel them very very viscerally and just because I find them hard to relate to doesn't mean that a they're not real or legitimate um so i think i think you're right and i and i actually i don't think jennifer would be saying at all that that these tribes and these identities aren't important but i think as you say what it comes down to is when you become the risk is when you become more um connected to your narrow tribe than you do forgive this slightly sickening phrase to the human tribe and um i think you know, I, I really like her um, her hope and her optimism ab about humanity that we all ultimately have an instinct for compassion and good within us. And I, I think as well, I mean, I think we sometimes make the mistake as Christians of focusing too much on, I mean, this might be controversial in some quarters, but focusing too much on Genesis 3, the fall, and forgetting Genesis 1, which is that we were we were made good and humans were, were, were made good. And I, I think we were originally good before we were originally sinful. And 
I, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that, that good that is within us. And just being a bit cautious about this narrative, which I can definitely fall into myself of just despair and thinking that um, humans are, are just have tribal othering conflict-based instincts all the time and losing track of that original good that that is within us and I, I believe is you know imbued within us but by God in, in creation. So overall then does that make you more hopeful for our political system if you think that way? Yeah it's a good question. I think to be honest I think there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance here for me there's a certain amount of conflict like I, I believe simultaneously that humans have within them a deep capacity for good and a deep capacity for compassion and love. And yet, simultaneously, I despair um, when I see politics in this country at times. And, you know, we're, we're recording this morning when it's just been announced by the government that they're planning a scheme to um, uh, offshore um, to offshore migrants who've come who who fled war, travelled um, from France or whatever, come to the UK, and we're going to put them in in boats and planes and send them to Rwanda to be processed. Um, to me, that is such a despairing, inhuman choice from the government. That's that's my view. Um, people may disagree. I think it's really uncompassionate and. So I, I have this sort of seesaw of really believing that we have within us the capacity for good and also seeing decisions like that, which I just think are inhuman and non-compassionate and also, by the way, economically stupid as well. But that's another issue. Yeah. Um, and that almost brings me to think about what are the compromises that it takes to engage in politics in the first place? Because I almost want to say, my, my gut reaction when you started talking, Ryan, was to say, well, really, we choose to follow leaders who set an example of, I guess, Emma Jennifer would say that, like, compassionate view, that active care, belief in others, trying to alleviate suffering, etc., um, which is a very biblical worldview, um, I think, at least. Um, that we would choose to follow leaders who um, espouse those ideals and live like that, and then eventually we'll see a massive change mm. if we that each one of us do that. But then the reality is is that to engage within politics mm. and specific moment, you know, to engage with the Conservative Party mm. does involve choosing to work with people who are creating these policies like you're saying like the, the refugee one is pretty shocking and I want that to be shocking I want that to continue to shock me because mm. I do think that's just <laughs> outrageous for so many reasons so inhumanizing um but yet how do we ever make change from within the political system if we're unable to work with those who make policies do actions that we just fundamentally disagree with I guess finding enough common ground yeah. um, is a way forward and uniting with those with you know a cross party um as compassionate politics do yeah. who 
can like cheer one another on in our own spheres. No, I, I completely agree. And it, it's about the art of the possible, isn't it? It's about bringing people together and saying that achieving, achieving even 10% of your goals, achieving, you know, a small amount of your goals is better than, than achieving none. And, and recognising that, that, that there are good people or many sides of the political debate and that you've just come to different conclusions about what the best approach through economically or, or socially, whatever is, and saying, well, I w- let's bring as many people with me as possible. And also recognising that this process is going to be um, gradual. I mean, Jennifer spoke about being, thinking that it was possible to make real change within five to 10 years, which on one level sounds so quick for the kind of change that she's talking about. And yet also feels like, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be in my 30s by then. And that feels old. So I like, I guess, yeah, just realizing that sometimes gradual change is all we can achieve and that that is a really precious thing. And that as much as we may have an instinct to, to just want root and branch and everything to be burned down and started, started again, that's not necessarily practical. And yeah, it's about, it's about the art of the possible, isn't it? So we hope that it was interesting and informative and encouraging and hopeful um, this podcast for you. Um, We're so glad that you've been listening. Uh, Thank you so much again. If you want to look up Compassion in Politics, they've got a great website. You can hear about all their work, their work with MPs um, and their reports, etc. So you check out their website. Um, And don't forget that if you would be up for being in our focus group, we would love to hear from you. Just go ahead and email us at inquiries at jointpublicissues.org.uk and um, that we'd be really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next month with another great episode. Bye. Bye.